Well, we might as well as do the benediction right there. We sang the sermon. No, not amen. We're going to preach anyways. I know what you meant. But one more and you're out. Just kidding. All right. Our scripture reading today comes from, this might surprise you, the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew, chapter 14. We're going to begin in verses 34. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them here. This is where we're going to be today. Verse 34 through chapter 15, verse 20, where the Holy Scriptures read. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men, that place, and the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded you to honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father then. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but that which comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you heard? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Whatever comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would be our teacher through your spirit. Lord, I ask that I would preach your words, not mine. That I would not add any man-made traditions to your law, which would be ironic today given our text. So I just ask that we would not do that. That you would help those of us who are entrenched in our man-made traditions. Traditions that prevent us from doing God's word. Traditions that prevent us from obeying you. We ask that we would jettison those traditions immediately. Father, we know traditions in themselves are not bad. But when they come to be authoritative on our lives and others. And they put the foundation of God's word second. Or even side by side. Then it is sin. So we ask, Father, that we wouldn't do so. And ultimately today, Lord, we ask that clarity of the gospel would, make, would be made clear. The songs we sing have made it clear, but we ask that the preaching would make it clear as well. Lord, we are prone to wander. We are prone to believe in legalism. It's the pulse beat of our heart, and it goes back to the garden. So we ask that we would not uh, live a life of legalistic living, that we would realize that if legalism were true, we would all be damned. 
for none of us can uphold your law as you've called us to. Help us now to look at this text and live by it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When it comes to bad treatments, humanity has cultivated into an art form. For example, in the late 19th and 20th century, when the damaging effects of cigarettes, and in case you don't know this, cigarettes are bad for you, the verdict's out, but when the damaging effects of cigarettes were not yet discovered or widely accepted, smoking them was used as a common treatment. And the treatment that it was prescribed for was, I kid you not, asthma. (laughs) For evidently, they believed that the smoke would cleanse the lungs from any microbes or diseases that were causing the cough. In 1989, humanity came up with a very smart, very genius treatment for coughs, That was also said to heal back pain. Evidently, they found out the smoking thing wasn't going to work, so they tried something else. Here's what it was. Not kidding. Heroin oil. Don't try it. And for over 12 years, these little bad boys were marketed as, again, I'm not making this up either, non-addictive morphine substitutes that would cleanse you of whatever sickness that was causing your cough, and it would cleanse you in a jiffy. However, not only was it unable to cleanse you in a jiffy, but they found out it was at minimum two times more potent than morphine, which resulted in it being infinitely more addictive. Uh, It doesn't get much better here. At the beginning of the 20th century, scientists discovered a brand new cutting-edge treatment for syphilis called malariotherapy. And yes, the name is exactly what it sounds as patients were deliberately infected with malaria, which is no common cold, this is a serious thing, in order to induce fever in the hope that the high fever would spike the body temperature and kill the temperature-sensitive syphilis bacteria. That's what they were trying to do, leaving the person cleansed then. And to be fair, however, it did work sometimes, but 15% of the time, it killed its victims which resulted in it not being that great of a cleansing treatment. One more here. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I'm sure you've heard of this one, so we should talk about it. It's about 3,000 years old. It goes back to ancient Egypt. It's a procedure that is actually responsible for killing America's first president, George Washington, which is a treatment you know called bloodletting. This procedure is exactly also how it sounds, as what you do is you let the blood out of the body, hence called bloodletting, some genius naming there, uh, pretty obvious. You let blood out of the body in the hope that any of the bad diseased blood would be removed and then be replaced by clean blood. Okay, I can see the logic there a little bit. However, it doesn't work. It doesn't cleanse the body. It actually leads to an uncleansing process. It's dangerous, very dangerous. It can cause issues such as cardiac arrest, dangerously low blood pressure, infection, so it's not cleansing anything, it's making it worse, and anemia. Now, these are some pretty silly treatments for uncleanliness and disease, are they not? Very ridiculous and silly. And as silly as those treatments are, as useless as those treatments are in cleansing the body from severe ailments, they absolutely pale in comparison to humanity's worst problem and their genius treatment for said problem. 
And what is that ailment? What is that problem? It's sin. We know this. It's sin, all right? And as we know, sin is the most serious of conditions that is not only physically deadly, but it's spiritually deadly as well. And so in our passage this morning, it's going to unpack and and bring us to this, this road where we have to decide, okay, what treatment are we going with? How are we going to deal with this sin problem? And as we see, the religious leaders, they had a treatment for it, for this serious condition. And what was their treatment? Legalism. There's a word we've all heard, right? Legalism. That was their treatment for this problem. Look with me, if you would, at Matthew 15, verse 2. Here's what it says. Here's what they said to Jesus. It says, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. You see that? You see their legalism and what form it came in? What was it? Hand washing. Legalism can take absolutely, insanely ridiculous forms, and this is one of them. And this actually probably isn't even the most ridiculous out of the ones we come up with. But here's the thing. If washing, washing our hands cannot cleanse us from sin, and yet, as we'll get to here in a minute, humanity has come up with so many treatments that are just as equally ridiculous, and the truth is, there's only one way to be cleansed from sins. And what way is that? Christ. All right? And this process of going to Christ involves three steps for cleansing. Here's what they are. To be cleansed from our sin, we must recognize our filth. There's an unpopular point, right? Humanity is generally good. Wrong. We must recognize our filth. We must recognize our failure. Oh, you know what? We all try. We do a little bit more good than bad, and then we succeed, and then we're good. We're cleansed. Wrong. And we need to recognize, third and lastly, our fix that we greatly need, and the only fix. Now, In verse 1, the Pharisees asked Jesus why his disciples break the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands before they eat. Now, we can relate to this a little bit because in our culture, too, we tend to wash our hands before we eat. Well, at least most of us, because let's be fair, some of y'all are kind of nasty when it comes to that. But in Jesus' day, right, it was a different sort of thing, a different kind of nasty. Like in our day, it's like, oh, germs, you got to wash your hands before you eat. But in Jesus' day, it was nasty because it led to this kind of spiritual defilement. Okay? That's how they saw it. It was a different sort of thing. And if I'm going to explain the differences between how we viewed it and how they viewed it back then with this kind of spiritual defilement, I'm going to basically have to cram about a 72-hour lecture on Jewish ceremonial law into about two minutes. So we'll see if we can do this. Here's how this worked. In the Old Testament, after God had freed the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and coveted to be their God and be with them, remember, he's like, no, I won't be with you because I will will lash out and I will strike you down and it won't be good because I'm holy and you're sinful. Well, the kids just learned about this in the children's Sunday school class and this last past two weeks ago, I think, with our family worship, it hit right on that. And what was the point? He said, Moses said, no, 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 we need you with us. Come with us. And so what did they do? They put these Levitical laws in place, this whole system in place, because God was with them. For example, how did this work? Well, since God covenanted to be their God and, and said he'd be with them, he demanded these ceremonial clean laws that they had to follow whenever they came to his, into his presence to worship him. For example... When it came to the priests, and I'm not a priest, by the way. We are all priests in Christ, okay? But when it came to priests, they had a whole lot of rituals that they had to follow before they went in to do their priestly duties. Duties, rituals like hand washing, foot washing, 
Okay, and this is just like a couple, we don't have time, but there's tons of these things they had to do before going into the tabernacle or the temple when that came around to worship God. And for everyone else, they also had certain rules and regulations that they had to follow, though not quite as strict. They were not quite as strict. But they had to follow these rules and regulations if they were going to join the congregation and worship God. For instance, if you touched a dead animal, hunters in the room, you know what I'm talking about. If you touch a dead animal, you're ceremonially unclean for an entire week. Okay, You weren't allowed to go into the tabernacle to worship God for an entire week. If you had an upset stomach or an infectious skin disease or if you had blood or pus coming from any part of your body, you were kicked out. You were not allowed in. I like how uh, one pastor theologian put this. I'm going to steal it from him, but I'm giving him credit, so it's okay. He said, it's kind of how doctors today have to prepare themselves before going into surgery. That times by about like 60, okay? That's what they had to do back then. You had to wash up, clean up, make sure there's nothing dirty whatsoever on you. There were certain foods that you couldn't eat. And in fact... There was a very long list of do's and don'ts. And if you want to know more about these lists of do's and don'ts, bust out Leviticus today, read through that. There's a lot of them, okay? But what's the point? The point was that hand washing or any of these other ceremonial duties they had to do to be clean was the point that they could cleanse us from our sin? Is that what they were doing? Were they actually making us holy by doing these things? Absolutely not. Not even a little bit. And the book of Hebrews explains that to us then, what these ceremonial rituals were actually doing. Because none of them could actually cleanse humanity from sin. So what was the point of them? Well, I'm going to oversimplify things because my two minutes has been about four minutes and we're too long on that. But it's this. They were illustrations. They were illustrations of humanity's sin problem. They were pictures is what they were. They were pictures that showed us how bad our situation was. They showed how we were covered in sin and that sin was deadly to us before a holy God. And here's the thing, church. Half of the battle is coming to recognize that truth. Like, I mean, there's, even, there's, there's Christian churches out there that will disavow what I just said. They'll say, no, that's not true. We're generally good. It's the scale system. We just got to have good teaching, good environments, and people are pretty good, you know? I think, I think they're pretty nice. No, it's not true. And so this is half the battle. And the Bible is clear. God is holy. Man is not. Man is sinful to the core. Every good work we even do is tainted by sin. It's tainted by selfish motives. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. Not in a million hand washings. And this is a big problem for us. Why is this a big problem? Lots of reasons, but I'll give you a few. For one, sin has a decaying effect upon us. As one theologian I read put it, he said that effect has both an internal effect and an external effect. Okay, let's talk about this internal decaying effect of sin. It leads to misery and suffering not only in this life, but in the life to come. I mean, just look at, at this life, how this works, right? Have you ever met somebody, or maybe it's you, okay, but suffering with deep guilt, deep regret that sometimes goes back 40 or 50 years? What does it do to them? It's like a cancer on them. It just eats them away. They can't get over it. It haunts them. It still keeps them up at night. 
what they're doing is they can't stop re-watching the tapes of regret because it haunts them. It weighs on them like an unbearable weight. And they are always then justifying, beating themselves up, and blaming others for their sins and their faults. The internal decay of sin is why humanity can't find happiness. Not any happiness that lasts. It's one of the reasons why our country is on, one of the reasons, okay, that our country is on more psychiatric drugs than ever before. It's because we are miserable. And why? Because sin has an internal decaying effect upon us. Yes, it tastes good up front, otherwise we wouldn't eat it. But the hangover hits us like a freight truck. And that truck keeps coming, running us over and over and over. Not only does sin have an internal decaying effect upon us, but it also has an external decaying effect as well. Why? Well, answer me this. Why do so many love relationships start out head over heels, like Disney live happily ever after, and then shortly thereafter they end in flames? What happened? The external decaying effect of sin is what happened. Why is there so much conflict between neighbors, between coworkers, between family members, between nations, and sadly, sometimes even churches? It's because of the decaying effects of sin. And part of this is understandable. Why? I mean, let me ask you this. Do you enjoy sitting next to somebody who has terrible BO? No. It's not a pleasant experience. You want to get away from them, right? It's like, ooh, back off, buddy. That's, you know? It's the same thing when it comes to spiritual BO, right? Like, this is a helpful illustration, right? So this is what we're talking about. It's, it's who wants to be next to somebody who is nasty, cruel, judgmental, haughty, vindictive. List all of the, all of the sins you can think of. Who wants to be around that? It's not pleasant. It stinks. And you know what? It's a billion times worse when it comes to God. Our stench repulses him so much greater than the stench we smell of each other. Because here's the thing. We all have spiritual BO, right? And so it kind of, you know what I mean? Like, we don't have our sniffer ain't working quite as good as it should be. But you have a holy God? He senses that unlike any other, to an infinitely greater degree. And so what must we do? We must come to recognize our spiritual filthy state Why? So that we can recognize our total failure and inability to cleanse ourselves, which leads us to our second point. To be cleansed from sin, we must recognize our filth, but also our failure. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, did they like how Jesus did things? There we go. No. One person. Good. No, they didn't. Not at all, right? Not even a little bit. And why didn't they like it? They didn't like what Jesus did because they kept writing prescriptions that they thought would cleanse people from their sin and Jesus kept ripping them up. Somebody would come to him, oh, here's the prescription, do this. And Jesus was like, yeah, that's garbage. No, not, not gonna work. And they didn't like that. And the reason Jesus kept ripping them up was because only God can write prescriptions for sin. Not me, not you, not deacons, not pastors, not church members. Nobody gets to. Only God can write prescriptions for sin. And the reason Jesus kept ripping them up then was because they kept disregarding this 
blatantly true biblical fact. See, the Pharisees, I don't know if you know this, but they weren't Baptists. I know this for a fact. They were not Baptists, okay? And I actually think that's part of their problem because if you don't know this, Baptist is an acronym. Every letter stands for something. And we Baptists, what we believe is that the B stands for the Bible is the only source of faith and practice, not traditions, not the words of your pope or pastor. He don't get to tell you what to do. Who gets to prescribe the antidotes for sin? God. And he does so in his word. That's what the B stands for. And if you want to know what the rest of those are, well, too bad, because it's top secret, and we only reveal them at our membership class. So if you want to be, find out what those are, go sign up, and you'll know. So how did the Pharisees then come to reject the Bible being the only source of faith and practice? What got in the way of them accepting the Bible as the only source of faith and practice? The words of men, which over time became traditions, the traditions of the elders. Why, Jesus, do your disciples not follow the traditions of the elders and wash their hands before they eat? See that? It was because of their tradition. And the way this worked was that while the Bible told us God's laws, here's how they thought, they said, tradition helps us understand how to apply God's laws. Does this sound familiar to any modern-day groups? It does. I'm not going to say any names. Anyways, it absolutely does. Yes, this is what the Bible says, but if you're going to understand it, you've got to come to us. You've got to come before us. We'll explain this to you. We have tradition and all this just mountain of human knowledge and understanding of how to apply God's word in given situations. Do you remember what the Mishnah was? Well, it's where they got these, that's what these instructions got written down in. It was the Mishnah. And Where did the Mishnah come from, these traditions? Well, allegedly, they said that they came from Moses, who told Joshua, who told the elders, who told the prophets, who told the leaders, who told the teachers, who told them. Evidently, they never played telephone, because that's a bad process, okay? It's not going to work out well. The truth is, they got it wrong, seriously wrong. And it was because they held to the traditions of man and not the word the perfectly inspired word of the Lord. And the way this worked is that somewhere, some, someone, somewhere along the lines of that game of telephone said, you know what? Hey, I got, I got, I got an idea here. This, this is biblical. The priests are supposed to wash their hands before they go and practice in the tabernacle in the temple, right? That was, that was clear. Scripture it's right there. We can read that. And they said, well, if it's good enough for the priest, certainly isn't that good for everyone else? See the logic? And then it was like, well, if it's good enough for the priest and good enough for everyone else, well, then certainly it's even better to do it all the time. You see how that train of thought went? And whammo, there you have it. Wash your hands or you don't love God. But here's the question. Chapter verse where God says that everyone must wash their hands all the time before they eat. Don't get me wrong, you should do it. It's a good hygiene practice. But to be accepted by God, where does God say this? Nowhere. It's man's words, not God's words. And so what happened? They went beyond scriptures and put words into God's mouth. There's about 60 passages we could read right now which threaten those who do that. This is an holy, all-powerful God threatening people, saying, you better not, because one day you're going to stand before me and you'll find out. 
Let me ask you, church. Are we supposed to go beyond what is written? Obviously not. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Let's look at a few of these. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos. Okay, this is Paul writing. For your benefits. Brothers, and here's the instruction, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Why? Because you'll become puffed up. You'll become arrogant in favor of one against the other. And church, this is exactly what happens. Or as we studied last Friday in our men's Bible study, shameless plug, Proverbs 35 through 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. That was to say, do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Back in Roman times, when an ambassador would come along and they would, or a messenger, they would bring the words of Caesar or a king. And if they added to that, what happened to that messenger? You don't do it. And this is a problem that's been going back in humanity's history for a long time. Do you realize that this is undoubtedly our greatest weakness when it comes to taking the bait? What do I mean by that? I mean the bait of sin and temptation, which comes from the evil one, which started way back in Genesis chapter 3 is what I mean. Remember what happened? Did God really say you couldn't eat of any tree? Did he really say that, you know, if you did, this would happen? Well, well, that's true, but tradition, tradition, tradition. Let me explain what it really means is what happened. Do you realize, church, that every cult on the planet exists because somebody had the brilliant idea of going beyond God's written word, who decided to not listen to 1 Corinthians 4, 6 and not go beyond what is written? And they do so under the guise of God told me so. That's their justification. Self-professing modern-day prophets, and some go even further to say that they're apostles, modern-day apostles, which they're not, they will say that they've got the goods on God's new revelation for you and your life. They got a word from the Lord for you. And in which my response is always wonderful. What's the chapter and verse? That's how we need to think about these things. And why? Not because I'm trying to be cheeky about it. It's because we're not supposed to go beyond what is written. We're not supposed to add to God's word, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. It's very serious to stand up. We don't have time. But to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. And so I'd appreciate you praying for me every week, more so than you're already doing, as I attempt to do so based even upon God's word. But when it comes to the prophets, they had a very strict standard. You get it right, 100% right, never wrong. If you get it wrong one time out of a 1,000, guess what happens? You're still 1,000% dead because they would stone you. Okay, In the Old Testament, even if, they, uh, even if what they prophesied came to be true, was that enough to be classified as a prophet who had God's revelation for mankind? No, because even if it came to be true, but they did not lead you to delight in the Lord your God and to love him and serve him, that person was to be, was to be stoned. It's a high bar for prophecy. And today, the church's modern understanding of prophecy, not, not every church, but many churches' modern understanding of prophecy, I'm sorry, it just doesn't fit with Scripture. It's 100% accuracy or it's 100% wrong. It's the same old thing that's been happening since Genesis chapter 3. It's a tale that is old as time, to borrow Disney. 
So don't be fooled. Don't be tempted to jump on that train. Stand firmly on our one and sure foundation, which is the word of God. Don't be tricked into following the whispers of the devil, which come through man's genius ideas, which over time become traditions. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, even the foolishness of God is greater than the best wisdom of man. Even the best things we can come up with, God looks at it, he's like, my foolishness will crush that. That's how much greater this is. Don't be tricked into following the words of man then. Hebrews 4.12. Let's hold up the word of God high here for a moment. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. You know what Peter tells us? How did their prophecies come about? How did their revelation come out that they had, they were given by the Lord? They were moved along by the Holy Spirit. That's how. And so he says, stand upon, our, upon these words, for we have a more sure word of prophecy. And so church, listen, yes, God leads us. Don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me today. God absolutely leads us in ways we can't even possibly fathom. But here's the thing. We don't need to look to our dreams. We don't need to look to visions, whispers in the night. We don't need to go out into the woods and wait until we get this, you know, the hair stands up and, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm not trying to bash on this. I'm trying to help us because that's not how we understand the word of the Lord, the the will of God. Paul tells us we understand the will of God. I mean, check out the middle part of Romans here. Like, it's very clear. It's not through that. It's not through tradition. It's not through man's thoughts. It is simply through the word of God and the Holy Spirit. Then when he is within us, how does the spirit work? He illuminates our minds. He brings us into truth through the word of God. That's how we grow. So here's the thing. If you're not reading your Bibles... If you're not in a church which opens up, Lord willing, God's word week in and week out and says, thus saith the Lord, chapter, verse, how are you going to know the will of God? You can go sit in the woods all day long. You're not going to know the will of God. You need to be in the word of God so that the spirit of God who is within us, illuminating our minds, I mean, comforting us, as Paul says in Romans 8, with groanings too deep for words. He prays for us. He's He's letting, you know, and he's helping us understand and giving us comfort that we are God's children. So you see this interaction here? It's through the word of God, not the word of man. Don't forget this. And yet today we're surrounded by so many voices, oftentimes professing Christian voices that would tell us God's word isn't quite enough. It's good, but you need the extras. Sure, it's good, but you need extras like, mm, how about the tradition of science? Is that one of the traditions we look to? Of course it is. Yes, Genesis says that even in the morning of the first day, God made the creation, God did these things, but, okay, bless your heart, that's, that's really cute, let me show you what modern science shows us, and that actually needs to be on the same level as Scripture in order to understand Scripture. Now, I'm not trying to straw man them, that's my conclusion of what's happening with this. The same thing happens with modern sexuality. And this hits us in a whole bunch of ways, from gender roles within marriage to how genders function differently within the church. Are they the same in terms of of, uh, 
Equality and value, yes, men and women are equally valuable before God, but the roles are different. And Scripture's clear on this. And guess what? That is completely countercultural. That completely breaks the current traditions of our culture in a very offensive way. The other way that this goes, and this has just been the last maybe five, ten years, but challenging that gender exists at all. You see that slope? You go from, okay, yes, there's gender roles, to nope, we're all the same in Christ, male, female, nothing, all the same, to, oh, wait, what's gender now? How did that happen? Because our firm foundation back here, which articulated us how the Creator made us to function, we rejected that, went with the traditions of man, and that slope ended up being quite slippery, didn't it? Very slippery. And so today, with gender roles, we don't even know what gender is. Today they'll tell us that gender is simply a social construct propagated by the patriarchy to oppress the marginalized women. If you don't know what any of that meant, good, because it's weird. Like, it's not, you're not missing out, okay? One more thing here, I'm going to be a dead horse. How about with our eschatology? What is eschatology? Our understanding of, of, of end times. We started with, gen, with Genesis, let's go, to, let's go to Revelation. How do we do this with Revelation? How about in 50 million different ways? Many today do the same sort of thing with the book of Revelation because it's not popular. They over-allegorize it and over-spiritualize it in a way that basically makes it mean whatever I want it to mean. Don't get me wrong. The Bible has mystery. The Bible has some poetry. It certainly has some allegory. Okay? We don't liter- when Jesus says, I am a door, he doesn't literally mean he's made of wood and has a knob. Okay? We're still taking that literally, okay? But the problem that I'm trying to get us to here is that our traditions keep preventing us from standing on the firm foundation of God's word from Genesis to Revelation. And what prevents us from doing it? The traditions. Man's view over God's view. And it's a problem that goes back to the garden. In the garden, Adam and Eve began the process of doubting God's revealed word. And so they began adding to it. And this is a process that has then now been, because of the fall, in our spiritual DNA ever since. And so like the Pharisees, what are we all tempted to do? Well, that's good. God's good. But we need the extras. I need the extra stuff. And some of these extras then, sadly, become our legalistic way of dealing with our sin. And yet, as Paul says in Romans 3, 4, let God be true and every man be a liar. Let God be true and every scientist be wrong. Let God be true and let every gender therapist, or whatever they call them, I don't know, be wrong. Right? Like, where is our foundation? When somebody comes to you and they say, yes, yes, but, 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 no, stop them. This is a Christian I'm talking about. Where is your foundation? What are you standing on? Is this this God's words with man's or is this God's? And you need to ask them that, church, because legalism is a liar. Legalism is a liar. Don't eat that. Don't drink that. Don't wear that. Don't wash that. Well, you can wash that, but you can't do it in a building that you know, houses more than 10 people. Can't go to a theater and do it, right? I mean, some of you know what I'm talking about. There's, there's a whole thing for a long time. What is legalism? To put it bluntly, legalism is a drug that has been concocted in the pits of hell is what legalism is. Like, if you hear one thing I tell you today, hear this. Legalism is deadly. 
Legalism is what? It's basing your righteousness or your worth or your favor on your obedience. I obey, therefore I am accepted. I obey, therefore I am cleansed and accepted, we might say. What gets even more messy is when legalism becomes based upon obedience, not just simply to God's laws, because at least if we follow God's laws, like in general, as Proverbs tells us, it goes better for us than blatantly disregarding them, right? But it gets worse when we take that further to not God's laws, but man's laws. They're both bad, don't get me wrong. But the one is worse. Legalism is deadly. It's absolutely deadly. And it's, we need to be careful because legalism is a liar. What is legalism? So it's thinking that God accepts you by your obedience. Now, as a pastor, do I fear and loathe the damaging effects of gluttony upon Christ's flock? I do. Do I fear and hate the damaging effects of drunkenness upon the church of Christ? Yes, I do. And... I'll even go this far. It's abolition would actually make us pastors' jobs easier in a lot of ways. It would. Just pragmatically, it would. Do I cringe and avert my eyes when Christians wear clothing they shouldn't that quickly tempts their brothers in Christ to stumble? Yes. Do I have a serious concern about the kinds of things that we watch in our homes and allow our children to watch? Absolutely. Absolutely I do. But church, hear me when I say this. There's something that I fear infinitely more than gluttony. There's something that I fear infinitely more than a modesty that attempts, that tempts others to lust. There's something that I fear infinitely more than the dangers of alcohol, more than the dangers of bad movies that pollute our minds. And what I fear, church, is legalism. Because legalism is a liar and it leads us to death every single time. Every time, it will lead us to death spiritually. And why? Because food cannot damn your soul to hell. What you drink cannot damn your soul to hell. Clothing cannot damn your soul to hell. And neither can TVs or movies damn your soul to hell. But legalism can. And one ounce of it kills. Yes, don't misunderstand me today. We need to take sin seriously. We need to have standards, we need to to apply them and try to live out uh, our convictions according to the word of God. But legalism, don't miss this, legalism prevents that. Legalism prevents that as legalism ultimately thinks that the prescriptions of man can cleanse us of our unrighteousness, but they can't. They can't cleanse us from our unrighteousness any more than cigarettes can cure asthma or heroin can cure our ailments. It's not going to work. And yet, what do we do as humans? Humanity, we keep trying this, this prescription over and over again. But all legalism actually does is it makes things infinitely worse by deluding us into thinking that we're applying the proper treatment when we're actually getting worse. In the end, what legalism does is it only serves to darken the stain that we cannot hide, as we just sang a moment ago. How does legalism darken the stain? By convicting us, convincing us that our righteousness is enough. Here's how this works. 
you start to think, ah, you know, just look, you know, I don't struggle with breaking any of those laws anymore because I set up this system where I just, you know, I don't touch it. It's gone. I don't go there. I don't watch movies. I don't drink this. I don't eat this. I don't do whatever. Fill in your, your your things, your systems that guard you from breaking that. And that's not bad in and of itself. But when those man-made rules become something that allows us then to think we've cleansed ourselves in some way, shape, or form, and then arrogantly start looking down on other Christians who aren't following our man-made rules, which work for us, right? We then get haughty. We get prideful. We get arrogant. What do we find with a legalist? Dark stains that they cannot hide. And if you pull back the rug that they covered up all their other sins in, it's pretty dark, is it not? Sure, they've dealt with the sins of drunkenness. They've dealt with the sins of gluttony quite well. But the harder ones, like pride, jealousy, gossip, loving your neighbor, are buried under that rug. They put them under there. They cover it up. And they're like, no, no, no. We'll deal with these ones. These are easy. I can do this. Whether because of a good upbringing, good heredity, whatever. And why? Because the other ones over here are just too hard. But of course they are. Don't you see the point? I mean, not getting drunk is easy. Throw out your drinks. Not watching bad movies is also easy. What do you do? Throw out your movies. Not wearing inappropriate clothing is easy. Throw out your, okay, don't throw out your clothes. You've got to wear something. But you get the idea here, right? Like, legalism likes the measurable sins. It likes the binary ones. I'm doing it or I'm not doing it. The ones that are easy to see. The ones where you can download an app on your phone and track your progress in that area. That's what legalism likes. But, you know what legalism hates? God's commands that talk about the heart. God's commands that talk about the fruit of the Spirit, which must exhibit in His children, which is love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. Those aren't very fun, are they? Not really, because I fail at them on like a minutely basis. If you have any sort of self-awareness at all, you'll realize that too. And then you'll also come to realize that your uncleanness is still a problem. It's a very serious problem. And if you don't come to realize that, and you're a legalist who checks the box on a few areas but ignores the weightier matters of the law, You've deluded yourself into thinking you're obeying when you're not, which is precisely what the religious leaders ended up doing. Right? Yeah, we've got a lot to cover here. Um, there's no Sunday school hour today, though, so I just, I just realized this, but we actually get twice as long to preach because we don't have, have a Sunday school hour. And yes, that's, a real mo- that's actually a real rule around here because I just made it up right now. Help deal with this time situation. After the religious leaders asked Jesus about why the disciples aren't washing their hands, Jesus goes scorched earth on these guys, doesn't he? He does. He calls these jokers out by pointing out their blatant hypocrisy. And boy, is this blatant. And how is it blatant? They were outright breaking the fifth commandment, which told them to honor their father and their mother. And why? Because they justified it with their tradition that said they were okay. They justified it with their tradition that said that they were fine. They weren't lawbreakers, really. 
they killed it with a million qualifications. So here's what they did to justify their law-breaking. Here's how this works. In the Old Testament scriptures, as Jesus points out, it commands the people to honor their father and mother, and whoever doesn't, what do they get? Death penalty. Sit up, children. Just kidding. I'd be dead. My tombstone would say 1983 to 1995 is what it would say, if that was still still applicable today. And mom's nodding. And so it was commonly understood that a part of this honoring of your parents was to take care of them when they were old. And fitting with that, as the Old Testament tells us, if someone refused to take care of their family members, it says, Paul says, that their faith, that they have denied their faith, and they're actually worse than an unbeliever. That's New Testament. So for God, this is absolutely serious stuff. But in Jesus' day, here's how the religious leaders taught the people they could get out of this. Right, because it was inconvenient to have to, you know, spend money on your parents to take care of them. That, like, who wants to do that? Okay, so here's how they got out of it. Mark's gospel tells us how they did, and it's a word called korban. Let's read Mark's Mark's account of this situation. He says, "But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have gained from me is korban, that is, and here's what korban means, given to God, then you no longer." Permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. This was some devious stuff, okay? Here's what, how this worked. The elders' tradition said that once you said Corbin, it was like a magic word that got you out of following the Old Testament commands of taking care of your parents and honoring them. It meant that you could do so because you were very spiritual and you declared all your goods for God. So I'm sorry, mother. I'm sorry, father. I can't take care of you because this money is actually for God. I... I, I I pledged it to the temple and to his service. But you know what's even more ridiculous? They didn't have to give it to the temple right then and there. They could have it go to the temple upon their death. And and so what they could do then is live it up. Enjoy those monies, right, during that time. They didn't have to give all of it. They just had to keep their resources there. And in the end, whatever was left over, they could give it to God. Then they were okay. It's absolutely ridiculous. This is what Korban was. It meant you could do whatever you wanted and be selfish by just saying the magic word, Corbin. And it meant you were no longer dishonoring your parents or breaking any of God's laws in that regards. And if this sounds silly to us, hold on a second, because we do it too. So what does Jesus do first in response to this? He pulls up a light, he shines it into the darkness of their hearts and points out their blatant hypocrisy. And he shows also their total inability of obeying God's laws. He shows them their legalistic prescription is actually disobeying God's laws and justifying it. And how does he do it? He quotes Isaiah to show this, right? I don't have time to read it, but check it out. He quotes Isaiah. He's like, that's you. What's he doing here? He's showing them that they are sinners who are still in desperate need of cleansing. And so church, do you realize how insidiously dark and twisted, and maniacal, and manipulative, our hearts are. Like I said at the beginning, like our hearts, even the good things we do are affected by sinful motives. You see this? Like, this is what we do. And yet, when it comes to all of our legalistic prescriptions, we can't even come close to solving the problem, let alone even coming to actually see the full depths of the sin-stained dark that we have. Sin-stained heart that we have, Sorry. 
And we can't even see the ways that we try to cleverly, which aren't so clever, uh, mask our justifications for our disobedience. Stop and think. Like, we don't have, I, I wish we had discussion time today. We could expound upon this about all the way we do Corbins. But think of all of the different Corbins we come up with as Christians. When we read the Bible commanding us to meet faithfully, regularly as God's church, what do we do? Oh, Corban. And then out comes a whole lot of really good reasons, right? Like, like, look, hey, the Bible says I have to take care of my family. I can't, I can't go to church. The Bible says I have to work. I can't go to church. I need to do all these other really good things. And therefore, that's why, Corbin, I don't have to obey that. It's Corbin. We do the same thing. On the flip side, okay, here's another way this works. Uh, maybe we come to church, but uh, we read where Scripture says we need to use our gifts for the work of the ministry. Like, we don't just show up as a spectator, right? Like, Ephesians 4, what is my job? Not to show up and try to put together nice music that everybody enjoys and try to preach a message that everybody leaves and says, that's awesome, see you next Sunday. No, it's to Ephesians 4, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Work of the ministry. That's not my job. Solely, it is my job. But not solely. My job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And what do people typically do in response to that so often? Corbin, Oh, that's just not my gift. I'm just really busy. It's a stage of life. Like, my gift is to work hard so that I can write bigger checks to the church. It's Corbin. You're commanded to do both. On the flip side, when Scripture commands us to give regularly to the work of the ministry, what also do we say? You know the answer now, right? Thanks, Lenny. Corbin! <laughs> I give differently. How? With my time. With my service. But what does Scripture say? Is it either or? No. It's both and. Look, I realize we don't literally say Corbin. We are this morning, but at least half of us didn't even know what that word meant until two minutes ago. But make no mistake, though we don't say that word, that's what we do. That's absolutely what we do. So you get the idea here. There are so many ways that our hearts will deceive us into justifying our disobedience by calling it obedience. Corbin. And if that's the case, we have no hope whatsoever of fixing this remedy. That is, unless we turn from the prescription of legalism to the only fix that can remedy our filth and unclean state, which leads us to our last point here. To be cleansed from sin, we must recognize our filth, our failure, and finally, the only fix that can solve this whole problem. Now, I wouldn't be surprised that some of you here are resonating with Jesus' message so far, but I do have a concern I want to address first before we move any further, and it's this, that you might be resonating with this for the wrong reasons. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. In Mark's gospel, after explaining you know, about how it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, it's what comes out of the heart, okay? Jesus says something that Mark adds that Matthew doesn't. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. What is Jesus doing here? Like, if you, if you don't understand how, like, I mean, this is top ten mic drops in the entire Bible, right? Jesus comes along and he's like, yeah, all those food laws and stuff, they're gone. What? <laughs> like, that's crazy. What are you doing? So what is he doing here? He's saying, yes, those laws, he- let me ask you this, is he saying, yes, those laws existed back then, but you don't understand, the grace of God has come, the love of God, everything's cool, kuna matata, everything's fine. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is he 
rejecting legalism and embracing anti-legalism or antinomianism. Cheap grace. God don't care. He's like the grandpa upstairs who just kind of winks at your sin like, <laughs> you know. Is that what Jesus is doing here? No. Of course not. And why do we know that? Because of what we read back in Matthew chapter 5 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And what do we read back there? Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So why can he then declare all foods clean like he did? How can he know that? How and why can he say that? He can say that because unlike the Pharisees, Jesus is not a blind guide. When he tells us things, he's not taking man's thoughts and adding them to God's thoughts, which become tradition. No, 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 no. Jesus is not a blind guide, unlike the Pharisees, who are blind guides, and as he tells us in verse 13, are destined to be rooted up and burnt in the eternal fires of hell. However, will Jesus lead us into that pit? No, absolutely not. And why not? Because Christ has overcome the pit for us. Like, he knows where it's at. He knows how to avoid it. And if we follow him, we absolutely can. And why? How? Because of the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, being Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Christ bore our filth. On the cross, Christ took the punishment for our failures. And he did so, why? so that he could fix the uncleanliness of our hearts and make us 100% clean. Not 99.9% clean, and the last part is our self-effort. No, 100% clean, church. Food and drink could never do this. Rules and regulation could never do this. Even the laws of God could never do this. Only Christ could do this, and he did this by the power of the cross, which powerfully washes away all of our sin. As we sang a moment ago, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. That can, what can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. We don't sing hymns around here simply because we want to appease people who are 90 and older, and me, who's 900 in my heart. It's because we, we believe this. We believe that whiter than snow you can be today. How? By simply coming as the crowds did. In the last part of chapter 14 here, at Genesaret, who come to Jesus in hope by faith for the healing that he brings. And how does that healing come? 100% through his work. Just a touch will do it. So my question is, have you done that? Have you been healed? Or are you still trusting in your legalism? Maybe, and and here's the thing, read Galatians. This is very, very clear. Even if you claim to trust in Christ and the gospel, but also add to that with your works, are you trusting in the gospel? No, Paul says. You've added to Christ's sacrifice, which means you've added your sin right back onto your account. You cannot clean yourself up first, and you don't need to clean yourself up first to come to Christ. You don't need to say a special, perfectly worded prayer. You don't need to walk an aisle. All you need to do is reach out in faith and touch his garment and ask him to cleanse you. 
And that cleansing comes through the power of his blood, which was spilt for us on the cross, which then Christ's body was laid into the tomb, into the grave. And that alone is what will fix things for us. And when we trust in him, our filth then is washed away. Our failure is finally and completely forgotten by God. And our standing before God is so fixed that when Christ looks at you, your sin is not what he sees. The righteousness of Christ is what he sees. And so then and only then, do you see now what we can do? We can step forward in faith and be obedient. Not say, ha, no, whatever, don't have to worry about God's laws. I can live however I want. Paul addresses that in Romans. Should we sin that grace may abound? Heavens know their judgment is rightly upon them. They're rightly condemned, he says. Two guides lay before us. The guide of legalistic Pharisaism and the guide of God's saving grace, which comes to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. One is blind. One can see. Which one will you follow? Father, I thank you for this text today. Lord, I just ask that by your grace that we would live these things. Father, I pray for the one here today who is in the camp of legalism, and maybe they've never realized it till right now. Lord, they have a decision to make. Which path are they going to follow? The path of legalism, which is lies that leads to death, or the path of God's grace, which leads to perfected righteousness for sinners, even such as I. Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. We're so prone to the pulse of religiosity, and finding our identity and our works and what we do, but help us to kill that today by the power of your grace and your spirit. And then help us to go out as a church and live victoriously for you as we walk in these good works, as we obey your laws you've commanded us to. But let us do so knowing that we don't do these things to earn your acceptance. We do this out of gratitude because we've been accepted. And so we pray that we would do these things by your precious name. Amen.